Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon, Marjan. So today is Sunday, June the 7th. And thank you again for taking a few questions for this video. So the first question today is just uh, with the background of what everybody's reading in the news these days with all these protests going on. Do you have any reflections around that, Paul? Well, it's, uh, you know, the uh, situation of the planet. There's so many kind of frightening conditions that are broadcasted through the media, through the internet. And this is worldwide, so, it, you know, the, the reaction is, is not just confined to one specific area or one country or even one continent. But the, the protests that are taking place, uh, you know, have become international about an incident that took place in, a, in Minnesota, in the United States. And people wonder why would, you know, people in, in European countries or other areas be that concerned. But this is an interesting time where, where the the mass media is bringing together the population of the world. We're no longer seeing each other as totally separate, separate countries in the, in the way that we did um, before. You know, we had, nationalism is very specific, you know, my nation, and uh, you define yourself according to your nationality, your race, your gender, all these are are identities that are programmed into us. They're not natural phenomena. They're, you know, you're not born with a sense of nationality or uh, race or, or gender. But these, these perceptions, these concepts, you know, are given to us when we're growing up, you know, that you are a girl, a boy, black or white, American or Brazilian or whatever, and then you're you're conditioned to see things through uh, the particular conditions of the time. Like I grew up during the Second World War, where you know the whole aim was where you know very righteous war in terms of the American attitude and. The propaganda was very, you know, uh, kind of exaggerating the importance and righteousness of the American dream. And so that's part of the conditioning from, from early childhood through teenage, uh, oftentimes unquestioned and merely the, the way we tend to explain and interpret experience in life. So, with racism or something like that is is a, is a condition that's acquired. It's not natural. It's not something that is part of uh, the natural flow of life. It's conditioned perceptions that one race is better or superior to another race. This is not the way things really are, but this is the way that various people have been conditioned to perceive in terms of 
good, better, best, bad, worse, worse. Because in Buddha Dhamma, you know, the conditioned realm is about differences. It's about, you know, that, that, that all sankharas are impermanent, sankharas change, they're never the same. And, and then you know, the Buddha points out the body is a sankhara, so there's no equality among bodies because we all have different forms, different sizes, different shapes, colors, genders, and these are changing conditions uh, and they're phenomena and you know they are their very nature is to change so what is superior about any condition is just an imagined uh, that we hold to we, we cling to an idea of, of some of someone being superior to another and so in terms of reflection, we begin to see through the, the um, delusions we create around the way we've been conditioned. You know, so that you're, you're, you're not trying to just adopt a new set of conditions called Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, uh, that uh, in exchange and can try to get rid of the old conditioning. But the old conditioning, the way we operate as an ego, as a separate entity, as a personality, as a man or woman, is, is, uh, is, is something that we've been uh, conditioned with since early childhood. So it's, it's not that it's right or wrong, some conditioning is better than others. But uh, it's still conditioning, it's still conceptualizing, it's still holding to sankharas as our reality. Where with meditation you're seeing that sankharas are not real, that they're, they're not what they seem or what we believe they are. Like the um, United States was founded on, on ideals. It's a very idealistic society founded on the Constitution, uh, equality, freedom, democracy, all the, the highest possible concepts that a human individual can possibly create with their intellect. Uh, human rights and, and freedom and equality are, are beautiful ideals and concepts. So that is the, the kind of um, karma of the United States is based on very high-minded ideals, but in reality, the actual economy at the time of independence was was uh, the economy depended on slavery, and and human beings could own other human beings as property, and that that was not questioned at the time of the American independence. So you know the problems of American society to this day is that. The, the conflict between the ideals that were established through the Constitution and the, the uh, condi karmic conditions that actually existed in the society at the time uh, were not really, you know, have only fairly recently since the Civil War has there been recognition, you know, a kind of determined determination to 
to make equal, give equal rights to everybody, every citizen in America. And uh, this is, this is, you know, it's been since, since the Civil War, really, that, that this has been become made fully conscious and judged according to right and wrong, good or bad. So a lot of the cultural conditioning still is based on the old uh, idea of a slave economy or one race superior to another. And, and that conditioning still operates so people take sides, see, see you know, make enemies of, of what they see as wrong or inferior or not as good as. Uh, and these are habits that if we're not reflective, if we're not aware, we don't see in terms of what they really are. We operate from prejudice, con biased conditions, our own nationalistic views, our own uh, way the, the women feel about their position in the society and how men feel and their position in the society are, are usually not reflected upon in terms of reality or in terms of the way things are, but in terms of the cultural conditioning or conditioning we receive later on when we when we wake up to the, the, the society, there's a lot of inequality and unfairness, injustice. Uh, but some people don't reflect like that. They feel, you know, have the idea that, that power is a way to control everything and to dominate people uh, and make them righteous, convert them to one religion, the righteous and the only right religion is, uh, you know, uh, uh, cultural bias. It's a biased attitude that that is easily believed in because it's based on what we believe is right. And right then, the, the, the clinging to righteousness uh, creates an enemy where what we, what we perceive is wrong or not the same as or, in, or unequal. Where with wisdom, we see the, that, that in terms of equality, all conditions have the same characteristics. You know, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, perceptual, sensual, whether it's nationalism or internationalism or uh, globalism, liberal or conservative, uh, our views about um, femininity, masculinity, you know, these are, we have certain righteous views coming from um, ideals we have of what should be and what shouldn't be. And these righteous views, it went, because they tend to come from what we feel is right, then automatically one that doesn't fit into our particular boundaries of righteousness is considered wrong. And, and as we are aware, we begin to see that, that we create enemies, we create problems through our own attachments to, to our own religion, to our own tradition, to our own way of thinking. And so even liberal-minded uh, people can 
see that conservatives are, are the enemy or conservatives can see the liberals as enemies because of this clinging to a particular viewpoint. And the point of the Buddhist teaching is to wake up to this, to see that this is really not the way things are. This is the way we tend to believe. And beliefs are, you know, they're, they're not realistic. They're given to us. With, you, you know, you might believe in, in, in God, uh, or then another person believes there isn't any God. There's both beliefs. You know whether you're a theist or an atheist, you know because you, you 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 aren't aware that that if you believe in God, that that you don't you haven't really considered what is God in reality. If God is is real, then it's then it's something to recognize that you can recognize or realize through experience. Where uh, to believe there isn't any God is the same thing. You. You, you take a position so your whole way of interpreting experience is, is atheistic. Where in mindfulness practices, awarenesses of uh, our particular cultural biases, positions we take, our own sense of righteousness, just observe your own sense of superiority to somebody else or your sense of inferiority or even the sense that we're all equal. You know, it's a creation uh, that we, we adopt. It's not the way things are. All conditions are not equal. They're all because conditions, phenomena, it's about all differences, the sizes, shapes, forms, uh, colors. And, you know, they're not equal. Blue is not equal to red, or yellow is not equal to green. But but in terms of equality, equality is reality itself. So, in the Buddhist pointing to, to equality, what is reality itself is awareness, consciousness. Because the consciousness of a man, a woman, uh, African American or white person, Christian, Buddhist, uh, Islam, whatever, the common where we're all equal in creation itself is in consciousness uh, because consciousness isn't about choosing, you know, that there's separate in, uh, kind of condition unique to individual bodies, but it's ultimate reality. And so mindfulness is awakening to this ultimate, ultimate reality which gives us perspective on, you know, when you see the, the oneness, the perfection of reality itself, then you, you know, how can you hate anybody or, you know, be jealous or guilt-ridden or, or, you know, uh, arrogant if you, if you see, the, if you operate from where equality really exists. But when we operate from our positions, our conditioned perceptions of equality, then it remains an ideal. And then we feel frustrated because things don't, you know, it doesn't seem that, you know, that, that we can make everything equal as an ideal, because that's impossible, where 
awakening to Dhamma is recognizing equality is our true nature. And what we think we are is all about unequalness, differences, changing conditions. Some, some conditions are good, some conditions are not good, but we're not aligning ourselves with this dualistic structure of thought and perception, but taking our stand, making ourselves uh, recognize, awaken to the perfection of Dhamma, of reality itself. You speak as of mindfulness as the way to realize that. Sometimes we use uh, this Pali word, satisampajanya, to speak about mindfulness. Uh, can you speak about that, and in particular sampajanya? What is it and how does one cultivate that? Sati is, is uh, you know, translated as awareness, and it's you know, here and now, because, you know, you're aware now. Whatever you're doing or, or uh, not doing, you're aware, it's like this. You know, then Sampachanya is, and that's more, awareness is more or less, uh, you know, just awakening to the present moment, it's like this. And then we, if we're not aware, I mean, if we're, if we're aware, but we're not using sampachanya, we're not using intuition, then we operate from our conditioned biases, like this is right, this is wrong, this is good, bad, true, false. So that just operating on awareness and being, you know, being conscious, we tend to perpetuate the conditioning, reinforce the, the karma conditioning, because karma really means cause and effect, conditioning, uh, and, you know, operating from biases, prejudices, nationalistic views, uh, and so forth, that, that are just habitual patterns that repeat themselves until we use sampachanya, which is, uh, in, I translate it as intuition or intuitive awareness, because uh, just the intellectual uh, perceptions are from the brain, you know, like the, the human brain is, uh, you know, considered the seat of consciousness by many people, by many scientists, psychologists. But the, the brain is more like a computer, it's, it's programmed. As I've been previously talking about, the programming, cultural programming, nationalistic programming, uh, personal programming we get from after we're born, uh, that's, you know, that's about what good little girls are and bad little girls. It's about who, you know, right and wrong, what's good behavior, what's, it's about morality, it's about ethics, it's about uh, social values, uh, you know, so on that level the, the uh, social values differ from one society to another. You know, what is considered refined in Thailand isn't, is not considered important in other places. So this is cultural conditioning. 
But Sampatanya is his intuition is more, more on the heart level than it's not from the head, you know, the judging conditions, nothing judging situations in terms of right and wrong, good or bad, but being aware it's like this, you know. So intuition is his you know, awareness that and that in that uh, includes everything. It's not judgmental. It's not about right and wrong anymore. It's not about how things should or shouldn't be, but it's it's the way it is. It's like this. So it's uh, it's you know when we use sampachanya in our lives, we begin to you know we we stop criticizing. We see the the suffering we create through just attachment to views of right and wrong, good and bad, and. Uh, and as we let go, then we see we we have this intuition that that our views, our particular righteous positions, our cultural conditioning, all conditioned phenomena is impermanent and not self. Not a is really not what one is. So <clears throat> wisdom comes from sampachanya, sati sampachanya. Together they. They bring us to the reality of here and now, the timeless reality that we're experiencing all the time. Because life is nothing but the experience of here and now. You know, you you, you don't you're not going to experience tomorrow now. You, you're experiencing uh, existence now. You're experiencing consciousness now. And here and now, you know, so you don't, it's not about the place, but the fact that here is wherever one is, and now is the, the, the way it is right now, not perceiving tomorrow or the past. So it's establishing this, this, this uh, standard, this natural uh, uh, wisdom that is available to all of us, you know, that is, is not something that is impossible or, or, you know, you can't do, but it's just awakening to, to the reality of things that, that uh, through Sampachanya we began to have the insights, not just intellectual positions about equality or freedom, or democracy, but we, you know, we understand what, uh, you know, all our condition uh, activities are, and you know, the summer when we're not judging them, we've established ourselves in sila, in uh, to do good, refrain from doing bad. So in that, it's, it's the, you know, training oneself with, with the five precepts, the eight precepts, uh, the 227 rules of the Buddhist monk, uh, is establishing a kind of foundation or vehicle for insight, for ultimate liberation and freedom. Uh, because uh, doing good brings happiness. And doing and doing bad doesn't bring happiness, you know. It doesn't bring a sense of self-respect or, or being at ease with yourself as an individual. 
you you tend to find yourself, you know, being critical of yourself and feeling threatened, a lot of fear through immoral, uh, improper actions uh, through physical activity or speech. So, you know, the very foundation of Sati Sampachanya is Sila. Dana Sila, Dana is, in Buddhist terms is generosity. So, you know, we're not just thinking of ourselves, of, of what I can get out of this, but we're, we're also generous. We, we share what we have, what we're able to share with others, is developing a, a foundation with Dana and Sila, generosity and morality. There's a foundation for this insight into ultimate freedom, true happiness, and, uh, and, and it's through Satisampachanya. You can't do it just through the intellect, just through idealizing or, you know, holding to ideals of what should be, because ideals themselves are conditions, you know, they're not ultimate reality. Someone asked if you could uh, say something about right speech. Yes, right speech. You know, it's an interesting time because uh, when I was a graduate student at the University of California in 1962-63, they had the freedom of speech movement. And I remember that, you know, the protests uh, at the university to, to uh, be able to use any speech, to say anything you think, to use four-letter words in public, uh, you know, because it's freedom of speech. And so there was this, this in, in the freedom of speech is, is uh, you know, another ideal. And what do you mean by freedom of speech? You know, this is a question now of, of uh, you know, public addressing to political correctness. It seems to be, you know, a contrast to the idea of freedom of speech, because if you take freedom of speech to its ultimate, you can say anything you happen to be thinking in the moment, whether it makes sense or it's nonsense or true or false whether it's useful or harmful. Uh, it's my right to say what I think in public is uh, taking the perception of freedom of speech to absurdity. You know, it's absurd because, uh, you know, there's such a thing as right speech and rather than freedom of speech. And I've often thought being a monk for so many years of uh, the joy I find in all the things I never said, but had thought during this, these years as a Buddhist monk. <laughs> because you're aware, you know, you, some people have no control over their speech, where they, they think whatever arises in their mind and just blurt it out. <clears throat> With political correctness, we're trying to not use speech to offend people, so that's one check on it, you know, on this idea of I can say anything I want. Uh, 
But remember, freedom of speech is an ideal that is created by human beings. And do we really want freedom of speech to everybody to just blurt out whatever they're thinking in the moment? Is that, is that going to bring harmony or peace or does that enhance the experience? Or is it just going to be an endless cacophony of, of, of uh, views and opinions and, and reactions to, to condi conditions of the moment? without any reflection or control or responsibility. So freedom of speech as an ideal, then political correctness is, a, is an attempt to try to avoid saying things that are going to offend or, or sound, you know, uh, mean or, or aggressive towards others in public. But also it can become, go to absurdity, as we see in many cases where you can't say something is what it is because it, you might offend somebody if, if, if you actually said, said it like that. So you use euphemisms or speak around things. is, is not sampachanya, it's not like, like uh, intuitive awareness, it's just uh, manipulating your mind to, to what you perceive, what you project on the people around you or onto yourself, where uh, freedom of speech, it, to put it back in, uh, in, in the context of what is ideal, speech is something that we develop after we're born. We're not born speaking any language. And so then we and, you know, so we have different conditions, different attitudes, different prejudices, or social or cultural national biases, uh, and that that uh, we we're conditioned with, that we speak from. So you know, in religious parlance, isn't it? It uh, tends to we speak from a particular uh, religious position or from an atheistic position, or a scientific position, or personal, we can see everything as, I have my own position, my personal positions. But positions are always, you know, conditions, they're, they're impermanent, they rise and cease, and we're, you know, and awareness allows us to see that, that that any position we, we're attached to is going to, you know, eventually unsatisfactory. That uh, just being able to say whatever we're thinking is, is that freedom? Does that make you free? Or does it, you know, does it create more enmity or confusion uh, or problems for yourself and the people you live with and the society you're in? And it's sampachanya, the ability, the intuitive awareness that develops this sense of what is appropriate to say, what is right to say at this time, what is needed to be to be said, to be vocalized, to be communicated to others at this moment. Then that is right speech. Thank you. One last question was someone asking how to use the reflection 
um, the three characteristics of uh, unsatisfactoriness, change, and non-self in daily life. It's the Buddha wisdom gave what's common <clears throat> three characteristics <clears throat> common to all conditions, all sankharas, all phenomena. So in this way all conditions are equal and through their characteristics. All conditions are impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, and they're non-personal, they're not self. So these, in Pali terms you have anicca, dukkha, anatta, translated as anicca is impermanent, uh, dukkha is considering as unsatisfactory or suffering, and anatta is not, not personal, not an ego. It's not, it's not, you know, the, the conditioned phenomena we take personally out of ignorance, out of lack of wisdom, out of just social, cultural conditioning, we operate from personal identities all the time, personal positions, uh, personal biases, personal prejudices that we, you know, that we attach to. And, but all those are not personal, you know, we, we create the sense of personal identity with what we're attached to. So I found this reflection <coughs> very, uh, <coughs> you know, it's kind of brilliant way of looking at phenomena because you're not just <coughs> judging phenomena, you know, according to right and wrong, which we tend to do with our intellect, you know, what is good, what is bad, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. We, you know, that's the intellect operating, that's the ego. The ego is, is based on right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. So, the, um, but the ego, you know, is conditioned. It's not, you're not born with an ego. A newborn baby doesn't have an ego. It has a form, it has a human form and it's conscious. And it has instinctual survival mechanisms for communication. But it doesn't think of itself as a personality, as a boy or girl or black or white, it, as Thai or American. It, it, you know, it doesn't, that's conditioned into us later on through after we're born. Where consciousness is natural, isn't it? Because it's not created. You know, the, the baby doesn't create consciousness uh, when it's born. It's born conscious. If it's not conscious, then it's stillborn. You know, the body is, is born, but the consciousness is not operating through the form anymore. So, anicca dukkanata or impermanence, just reflect on, you know, your own experience of life and what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, emotions, uh, your beliefs, your, 
your, you know, your prejudices, your loves and hates, you know, they're not, you know, they come and go, they change according to conditions. Some, you know, one of the common requests is, uh, how, do, how do I get rid of anger? You know, like the idea that if you're really enlightened, uh, you don't feel anger, you don't get angry. And on retreats, one of the most common questions retreatants have is, how do I get rid of anger? And uh, so, anger is, is part of the package of being born in, in a mammalian form, in an animal's form. You know, it's, it's common to all creatures, you know, mammalian creatures. Because it's, you know, there's a lot to, when you identify only in terms of instinct and survival, and form, then there is a lot to be angry about, you know, because life isn't going to to bend, you know, to protect you as an individual ego for a lifetime, that there are going to be times where anger arises, uh, greed arises, lust arises, confusion, resentment, jealousy, fear, these are all part of what we call the samsara, the cycles of samsara, or the cycles of conditioned phenomena, which are all impermanent. So when we reflect on what we see, like the eyes that we see with are impermanent. You know, they, when, when the body's dead, the eyes decay. They have no kind of consciousness of their own, but consciousness can operate through seeing, through hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and this, this, uh, but once the body has died, then uh, consciousness doesn't operate, the, the, the sense organs decay, so they're impermanent, yet we strongly identify personally with sight, with sound, with smell, we have strong views of, you know, what is taste, what is delicious, what isn't, what's, uh, harmonious and beautiful in terms of sound and what is cacophonous, what is ugly, what is beautiful. And these are all determined through conditioning, through the intellect, through comparing one thing with another. But in, in uh, mindfulness practices, meditation, we're, we're observing that, that everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, the bodies that we identify with, they're all impermanent. That's their nature, is to change. You know, once you're born, you just grow old. You know, you can't get younger than a newborn baby. <laughs> but uh, you can get older. So once it's born, it can only grow old until, you know, whatever age you is the end of your life, which could be any time. Uh, you know, the, the movement of birth is towards death. So, you know, there's a joke amongst Buddhist monks that we're all born with a terminal illness, <laughs> which is birth, isn't it? It's because once you're born, you're going to die. And so that's a, a fact, you know, nobody's going to refute that. But <laughs> Oftentimes we live our life as if we're not going to die. 
you know, and the, but death is, is, is the nature of what begins must end. What is born must die. Uh, this is the, the characteristic of impermanence that's common to all conditions. Whether, you know, whether they're big or small, right or wrong, whatever, you know, male or female, freedom or slavery or whatever, they, they're all conditions that are, that are changing and are impermanent. They're all, if we attach to impermanence, then we suffer because, you know, they're unsatisfying. You know, even if you become the richest person in the whole world with everything you've ever wanted available at every moment of your life, there's still, you've got to deal with fear and safety and protection and, and you know, hoarding and identity with wealth. And when you're wealthy, other people, you know, are jealous or want to take what you have. So, you know, it creates more fear and anxiety and, and paranoia. So even trying to get the best of life itself through the senses, through what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, is only going to lead towards dukkha or feeling of unsatis being unsatisfied, a sense of lack or, or something's missing because this binding ourselves to conditions limits us to that condition which is in itself going to change. And so, you know, you find yourself at peak, peak moments where everything is perfect in your life, you know, so you think, you know, I've got everything I want, I'm at, you know, I'm at my best, I'm successful, I have a good income, a good partner, uh, everything is, is wonderful. That's like a peak moment, but it, you can't sustain that. You can't sustain a peak moment, uh, so, you know, because that's a peak and so it's going to change, go the other way, which is toward, you know, the changes we don't want when, we, when we're grasping what we consider is perfect here, here and now. And then anatta, non-self, is, uh, you know, a real liberation to be free from identifying yourself with phenomena, with conditions. Identifying yourself with impermanence and suffering. To see yourself always in these limitations of, uh, the, of your physical form, you know, of your intellect, uh, of your social position, of your status, of your, you know, in terms of whether you're considered successful or failure, you know, whether you're prosperous or poverty-stricken, to always identify with these positions is, is, is suffering, it's impermanent, and it's not a self, it's just an imagined self when we identify with poverty, with success, with prosperity, with, with political preferences, with gender, with nationality, uh, and so the, the reflective ability in Buddha Dhamma practice is 
to see, you know, we've given these three characteristics to reflect upon again and again, so that, because we need to remind ourselves, because the, the default position is usually to revert back to condition, habits, because that's what we're used to. So, you know, when, we, we, when we're poor, we identify with poverty, and then we, you know, we create this sense of we're not as good as somebody who's rich, or it's not fair, we begin to envy the rich and want to get what they have. So it creates endless problems, personal problems, social problems, because we identify with, with our position in the society, with what we have or don't have. But when we see that whatever we're thinking, whatever we're feeling at, in the present moment, here and now, is anicca, it's, it's impermanent, it's dukkha, it's unsatisfactory, and it's not, it's anatta, it's not personal, it's not self.